This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Orcs! Chicago Gangland! Iconic characters! And unpardoning Nixon! We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The rattle of dice and the warm, enveloping smell of pizza tell us that we have entered once more the familiar confines of the gaming hut. And within the gaming hut, we left a fraught existential problem mapped out on the battle board uh, last time. And, Robin, I believe that you were uh, champing at the uh, uh, high hard bit to get back into it. So why don't you uh, set it up for us and lay out the minis? So we're going to examine today in this segment the soul of the orc. And the issue here is that uh, we were talking about this earlier in the context of uh, game designer politics and how you... Uh, inadvertently or on purpose reveal your uh, personal politics or your unquestioned politics through game design choices. And one way in which I think it's more often people just aren't really totally thinking through a set of implications because they're not always pleasant to think through is the question of how you portray orcs in your fantasy world and to what extent that either brings up or refutes some really sort of nasty elements in, first of all, human psychology and in the history of genre material. And the pulps uh, from which we derive a lot of our inspiration have a really unfortunate, flat-out racist overtone a lot of the time. Or just a tone in some cases. Or but just a tone, yes. <laughs> it's not an undertone, it's an overtone. Right. Um, and we've talked a lot about uh, Lovecraft's very evident racism in his work, but he doesn't write very much about orcs, uh, nor does Robert E. Howard particularly, but his portrayal of, for example, Africans in his Solomon Cain stories, uh, you could map a lot of what is described in those stories about uh, black Africans, and uh, that's a very similar to what you see later in a lot of portrayals of orcs. And so when you are inventing a imaginary intelligent culture that it's mostly okay to kill on sight you want to be very careful first of all with that premise and whether that's an acceptable premise to begin with but also to what extent you are portraying orcs as being either like traditional tribal cultures as being like uh, having tropes connected to them that earlier are part of racist portrayals of uh, native peoples or traditional peoples from other parts of the world. And so when you're uh, creating your orcs as innocently as you may wish to create a situation of justifiable genocide of guys you can always go in and bash down the door and kill, I think that you have to be really careful to make sure that you are not unconsciously taking part of this great reservoir of unquestioned racism that is part of the very source material and root 
of the source material that we draw on when we create fantasy worlds. Now, the big source of works in fantasy, of course, is not from the American sword and sorcery tradition, but from the British high fantasy tradition through uh, Tolkien. And he very carefully renders his orcs as sort of a creation, as a state of a fall from religious grace, and that you also have a situation where you rarely have the characters in Tolkien being the aggressors. They are not uh, rushing, looking for orcs to kill in order to steal their stuff. The orcs are very clearly set up as, as the antagonists, and that takes some, if not all, of the uh, fraught racial questioning of the orc issue off the table. So is your is your argument that uh, as long as you hew to Tolkienian orcs rather than uh, quasi-Hawardian orcs, you're okay? Or what's... I mean, because plenty of people have accused Tolkien of uh, having uh, a racist uh, overtone in Lord of the Rings, obviously, once you get with the... Especially when you start having the other races of humans that are also serving Mordor. I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm saying that you want to think about the issue and look for various ways in which to counteract it. Yeah. But that there are degrees. Uh, it's the old, you know, overtone, undertone issue, right? That you can uh, make the argument that uh, Tolkien is racially fraught, whereas it's indisputable that Howard is racially fraught, for example. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, how do you deal with the, uh, just in general, the justifiable genocide issue, right? Is it always okay to kill orcs in your universe. And so that, especially if you're going to have, you know, young teenage players as early D&Ders, uh, almost every group of young teens winds up having an existential argument as to whether it is okay to kill orc babies, which perhaps is not a discussion that we wish to be encouraging or to have framed in that way. Yeah, I think that certainly, regardless of what you're writing, whether it's fantasy or, or science fiction or pulp or neopulp, whatever it is, you should be aware of uh, any sort of connotations that you present when you have, for example, a race that is pure evil. But I think that it is possible, especially when you look at what Tolkien was drawing on, to sort of separate the threads of uh, what we consider the word race to mean in modern-day America versus what Tolkien considered the orcs to represent, uh, which is obviously the successor to the various sort of uh, demonic um, uh, forces that are incarnated in uh, the Anglo-Saxon stories, you know, the uh, the, the, the troublesome uh, Dwergar and uh, Grendel and beings like that that are all out there on the fringes of civilization and are literally, in many cases, either cursed by God or sent by God, uh, or rather freed by God out of hell to... Um, uh, to punish uh, the, the 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 main society for its various uh, you know uh, cowardices and falling back, and you see some of that even in Lord of the Rings, where the sort of the uh, the faint heartedness of first Isildur and then of the whole stewards of Gondor in the in the in, in the face of, of their moral duty to you know suck it up, destroy the ring, and uh, uh, crown the Dunedain that they have fallen away from what the true path ought to be, and therefore they're being visited by what is less a um, another race of people on a different continent who just happen to have boats or whatever, like uh, Vikings or Mongols, and more of a supernatural 
uh, uh, vengeance or threat or uh, danger that is presented as part of a mythic structure, not as part of a uh, anthropological structure. And I think part of the problem is, A, that Gygax used the term race to refer to orcs, which opens up, you know, all manner of uh, cans of worms there. And second of all, that people cre uh, commit a sort of a category error when they're trying to look at fantasy as though it has anything to do with anthropology and history. And for me, if I want to play a game about anthropology or history, that's why I set my game in Earth, right? As we have discussed many times before. But if I want to play a game of high fantasy, I want a game that specifically draws on mythical uh, elements, that, that is sort of above uh, questions of, you know, uh, folkways or, or, or songs or whatever, and that anything that happens uh, on the ground is happening because it serves the mythic uh, weight of the story rather than because it makes sense that orcs would smash up a, a manioc root for food or something idiotic like that. Right, and so that is one of the big ways that you can have a group of intelligent enemies that it's always okay to attack is to say these are supernatural monsters from another realm and they are not uh, mortals, they're not humans, they don't have a culture... Uh, but in a lot of fantasy worlds, you have demons and you also have orcs and that people who like to build imaginary worlds do indeed like to bring in elements of anthropology as part of the exercise of taking um, um, real world knowledge or science or information and then spinning it into creating their own worlds. And so when you do that, the question then becomes, are your orcs essentially another form of demon? Are they beyond the uh, mortal morality? Or are you indeed creating a uh, culture? And if you are creating a culture, then the question becomes, how do you avoid characterizing your antagonist culture as always being an antagonist or always being evil? And how you avoid attaching to them the qualities that people generally attach to stigmatized groups. So, for example, if you look at the history of real-world racism or prejudice, even in societies where uh, that are racially homogenous but have a stigmatized undergroup, there are sort of correlates across cultures of how those people will be described. They will be described as ape-like. They will be described as dirty. They will be described as having... Uh, connection with blood and death. And so if you are ascribing all of those qualities to your mortal race of anthropological orcs, I think you need to sort of, or I would hope that people would step back from that and recognize that they're playing with fire and that there are active ways that you can try to address that. For example, in Earthdawn, Earthdawn has orcs, but it doesn't ascribe to them the status of an antagonist race. They are no more evil than any of the other distinct subspecies of uh, mortal kind that interact with each other in the uh, Earthdawn uh, setting. Now, when you get those orcs into Shadowrun, and of course in the history of those two related games that went the other way around, you still have the difficulty of you know, are you always assigning the orcs as being the, the urban hip-hop guys? Uh, you know, that's that's problematic too. And I think a lot of people just want to have an intelligent race that it's always okay to hit over the head, but uh, there's a lot of 
trouble involved with that, and you have to do uh, thinking to get a, around that. There was a time, apparently, when the folks at Games Workshop considered, uh, but I think unfortunately did not go through with, having their orcs be uh, basically a humanoid fungus. Um, and so that, again, sort of uh, gives you that engine of destruction thing, but in a way makes them more like zombies or more like a, a humanoid enemy that you can always sort of attack. But what you, you know, wound up with, again, was the anthropologized orc who happens to have a lot of the same traits that we traditionally ascribe to uh, marginalized or stigmatized groups. Well, and again, uh, keeping in mind that it's not always cause and effect the same way, because if you are describing uh, something that you don't want around you, you will describe it as dirty and associated with blood and death. And you may uh, use any number of uh, animal signifiers to indicate that it's bad. Wolves is probably the most common one in medieval times, but apes is another one that does occur. I mean, it occurs, for example, uh, you know, even now as people are uh, doing uh, the various, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes type uh, stories, which was also a, a sort of an attempt, uh, much like a lot of later uh, game designers did, to sort of try to reverse the tropes, uh, which, which still comes across as, I guess, problematic uh, to uh, someone, you know, generations later reading it. Right, and, and as a culture rises out of stigmatized status, their ape status can be revoked. So in the 19th century there were a lot of references to the simian Irish. Yes. And there were uh, caricatures of the Irish as being apes, but that uh, both in uh, in Ireland itself and in, in Britain and in North America, as uh, the Irish uh, rose out of that uh, stigmatized status, you don't hear that anymore. But then there are other groups of people who, you know, continue to be hit with that uh, label, which, of course, is like you're almost human, but not quite, and you're uh, you're ugly and you're irrational and you can't be dealt with. And so another thing is just to make sure that if you have, uh, if you're going to go to the trouble of having intelligent antagonists for the player characters to fight, you should make them well-rounded and you should have a reason for the uh, bad guys to be doing something bad other than that they are just innately evil and so uh, again that will bring you possibly closer to sort of a u.s canada relationship with native peoples or something but at least it's some uh, an awareness that you can bring to the table and try to make part of uh, your treatment of this issue now the other approach to that is just to take it off the table completely and say well the main intelligent bad guys are demons or they're uh, vampires or they're zombies or they're uh, something else that you don't traditionally associate with all that imagery of the stigmatized. Although, of course, you can wind up, uh, you know, deliberately trying to associate it with that imagery to make uh, some sort of political point. I mean, for example, Angel, uh, after Buffy had made a pretty good job of stigmatizing vampires and demons, Angel goes along and they have all the good demons who don't want to be stigmatized and live in their ghetto and have uh, their own music and their own, uh, you know, uh, hipper lifestyle sort of uh, combining the gay and black stereotypes into demons as sort of a, a reclamation of demons. And I'm not sure if that was Joss that did that, uh, realizing what he'd done in Buffy, or if it was uh, Marty Noxon doing it. But there certainly is a, even within that universe, like you say, the Earth Dawn, Shadowrun pattern, any intelligent 
uh, antagonist, you're going to wind up painting the way that humans have painted their intelligent human antagonists. And given the vast number of, uh, or at the very least culturally fraught conflicts over human history, and even racially fraught since the invention of uh, modern uh, race consciousness in the 16th century, you, you know, it's going to be very, very hard to paint any kind of culture without using a racial trope. Uh, it, sometimes it's more obvious and more uh, disturbing than not. Um, you know, the Jamaican Gungans, for example, in um, uh, uh, Phantom Menace, or the Jewish Ferengi in Star Trek, uh, that I, I have no idea how that got past uh, a network, but uh, there, it was there just they were. Roddenberry's caricature of network executives. Exactly, that couldn't yes. possibly be any just, sort of Jewish connotation they, to that. Right. The fact that the network executives are all Jewish is just a it's a coincidence. Yeah, the um, so so you can you can see things like this that are produced, um, and I'm fairly sure that you you can't look at uh, Star Trek as being you know thinly veiled anti-Semitic propaganda. It's thinly veiled anti-capitalist propaganda, but the. Um, uh, but but the but the troublesome tropes remain, and the trouble is, of course, that racists have uh, you know uh, right-thinking people have no monopoly and seem to perhaps even not have their fair share of creative, exciting uh, storytelling, and that much of the creative, exciting storytelling, certainly the creative, exciting storytelling that we're drawing on, was created by people who were excited by what was at the time the sort of scientific understanding of race, which is that various races evolved at different rates. And so to go to a different uh, uh, continent was in a way to travel back in time and, and to experience historical fiction in the present. And that's what you see in a lot of, uh, say, the Tarzan stories, where uh, Burroughs, who is, again, a man of his time, has the differential uh, between the various races of Africans in Africa and the ones that are closer to the ape are the more uh, orcish, I guess, and the ones that are, uh, there's one or two of the tribes that are uh, Tarzan's uh, friends, and they're always the tallest, most clean-limbed of the African races, although he, does, he doesn't describe them as particularly light-colored, he just describes them as physiologically different in a way that, you know, very clearly explains that it's evolution that's going on here. And it's that same sort of uh, sort of uh, scientific uh, Darwinism that uh, manages to, you know, add so much interesting um, uh, uh, blood and gore to uh, race theory in the latter half of the 20th century. Right. And, and of course, by scientific Darwinism, you mean misapprehended Darwinism. Well, I mean, Darwin himself believed it, it at one point, And, you know, it was scientific consensus, just as much as scientific consensus of mitochondrial DNA counts is now. It happened to be wrong. But right. it, you know, it, it's not like people were running off misusing Darwin in a way that was not being done by pretty much everyone who was an anthropologist at the time. Franz Boas was a tiny, uh, was one of a tiny minority of anthropologists who believed that uh, uh, quote unquote racial characteristics were created by the environment rather than by heredity. Right. We just need to be clear that we're not talking about evolution. Uh, evolution and Darwinism in the way that you're using it are two very different things. Yeah, but um, again, I mean, they're different things now because we have a vastly better understanding of, of well, again, of how DNA works, but uh, a, a, probably a, a richer uh, background of anthropolog anthropological data than they did. But again, at the time that people like Burroughs and Howard are writing, this is not, you know, misapprehended Darwinism, and it's not that uh, people who were, you know, leading Darwinists thought any differently. Uh, people like uh, Heckel, who were, you know, basically Darwin's successors, were, you know, parroting this line and, and promulgating it and talking literally about the evolution of human races. 
So, it, it, you know, it, what we've gone through, and I think pr certainly for the good, is a sort of a Kuhnian uh, paradigm shift in the way that we perceive uh, Darwinism. But it's, but it's a paradigm shift that includes Darwin uh, to a large extent. Right. Uh, and speaking of DNA, there's another bit of unfortunate DNA in uh, the fantasy tropes in that you also have the drow who, uh, <laughs> yes, because Gygax get... hasn't put enough, uh, <laughs> easily <laughs> misapprehended things into his fantasy universe yet. <laughs> right. So you have your, uh, beautiful blonde Aryan elves and, uh, and you have your, uh, always evil except for one really cool badass that everybody wants to be a guy who happens to be, uh, ebony skinned. And that's another example of taking the uh, original mythic imagery of, you know, the, the, the Schwarze Elva and turning them into a uh, mortal culture and calling them a race. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's something else that is uh, uh, deeply unfortunate and also an ineradicable part of the uh, popularity of the D&D &D property. Although I guess um, we should, you know, it, it is slightly better that everyone wants to be the cool drow and uh, vastly more than the people that want to be the, uh, the, the one good orc or the half orc assassin. I mean, the drow, you know, for whatever reason, got, got sort of the cool Darth Vader uh, quality of being black and evil as opposed to the uh, dangerous, uh, you know, don't go there, lock the doors, children quality that uh, the orcs got. So I guess there's something to that. Um, it's it's still not necessarily uh, what you'd want if you designed it from the ground up, but it's it's something. So I guess really all I'm saying is uh, be aware of these issues when you're designing a world or a setting and try to bring them into play and be conscious of them and make them part of what you're doing because they're going to be part of what you're doing whether you're conscious of them or not. And if you're not conscious of them, uh, that may lead to some moments that are pretty squicky. Yeah, I, I think squickiness is... Um, <laughs> you're, you're going to run across squickiness probably uh, with any story that you tell that hits people where they live, which ideally will be some portion of your role-playing experience, and you shouldn't have squickiness in there that you didn't plan for one way or the other. I think that uh, my my general advice would be, you know, as as Robin says, if you're if you're going to present uh, these uh, races as as human or anthropo anthropologized, um, you should do so with a great deal of attention to what it is you're doing. And uh, if you want to avoid having to do all that work, you'd better make sure to present them as mythological or supernatural or in some way other than something that you could go off and uh, study or get a federal grant for. And on that note, I think we have rolled our d20s and come up with a critical segment ending roll. creak of the basement stairs beneath our feet indicate that we're creeping down into the Height Memorial Library and into the well-footnoted confines of the History Hut, where this week I thought we would again pick up another thread from a previous podcast and talk a bit more about 
Chicago gangland. And in this case, I thought we would sort of do a then and now comparison. And from what I gather, the current gang situation in Chicago mirrors what is happening on a much smaller scale uh, because we're talking about violence. So what happens in Toronto is a smaller scale version of what's going on in Chicago, where in both cases there was a relatively recent roll-up of the big kind of unified drug gang that controlled uh, trafficking in the city. And there has now uh, been a sort of a lawless state as various smaller uh, gangs uh, in uh, Toronto, often sort of uh, divided by ethnicity, fight each other for microturf, which has resulted in a big uptick here in uh, shooting incidents. And uh, what is the similar situation, if any, in Chicago? Uh, the situation is pretty much exactly similar in Chicago, although our big uptick in shooting incidents mean that we're uh, cresting above 500 murders in a year, which is fairly dramatic for an American city in the 21st century, um, although the murder rate is actually a little bit lower than some other American cities. It's still an absolute number that is just appallingly high. Um, and that is because, basically, the big... Uh, gang empires that were created, and these were created in the 60s by uh, primarily marijuana uh, uh, traffickers and crack. Uh, the crack cocaine epidemic sort of just uh, provided a uh, another, um, I guess, another SK, SKU for the shelf more than anything else. But uh, the uh, the big uh, gangster disciples, which was created by two different gangs uh, that uh, that unified, uh, and the Blackstone Rangers or the uh, uh, Stone P Rangers, depending on exactly which uh, batch of rangers you're talking about, were the two dominant gangs on the south side that ran uh, most of the, of, the, of the drug trafficking in the south side. Uh, we, had, we have the Latin Kings and we have some other uh, vice lords and, and, and groups like that. There's a, a gang called the Two Six that's on the west side. But the, the big gangs were these, uh, were these three big-time gangsters that basically flourished uh, between the renewed war on marijuana and the creation of public housing. And what public housing allowed them to do was basically keep all of their army together in one barracks. And it was much easier for people like Jeff Fort to uh, uh, engage in discipline because all of his soldiers were right there. It wasn't like Capone would have to send a guy to go find um, uh, Jake Music if he wanted him slapped around or send a guy to go you know, shoot machine gun Jack McGurn if he wanted him taken out. He would, uh, in, in, the, in the projects, you've got your whole army is right there in a single location, and obviously that has advantages for command and control. It has advantages for uh, turf uh, defense. It, it's just a, a really terrific way to get gangs is to build public housing, uh, certainly in the form of tower blocks in the way that we had it in Chicago. So those two sort of um, uh, macro events drove the uh, unification of Chicago gangs under these... Uh, these three, uh, uh, you know, sort of super bosses, uh, capo di tutti capi, if they had been Italian instead of uh, black, um, uh, but sort of uh, Capones of Chicago in the 60s and 70s. And then also they <laughs> had the Philip that even Capone never thought of, of getting government grants to work with the disadvantaged poor, which is something that still goes on a lot of times in Chicago, where the the city will provide grants to gang members to run after-school programs or something on the grounds that they want to run the after-school program and the gang absolutely controls the school campus, so you might as well just cut out the middleman there. Right. There's, there's no one else you're going to 
get to be able to go in and be successful. So you make a bit of a deal with the devil in mm -hmm. order to try and make people's lives a little better within a, a bad situation. Yeah. But of course, that makes it very, very hard then to go and engage in sort of consistent law enforcement against these guys because they've already got connections in City Hall. And again, in Chicago, uh, money exists to procure votes and vi vice versa. So the... Um, the, you know, we have gang-connected uh, felons that are basically running, in a lot of cases, various Chicago wards or various Chicago congressional districts. And it's uh, <laughs> certainly problematic, but again, it's it's nothing that didn't happen in the in the 20s and 30s. Right. It's part of a proud tradition. It's just <laughs> right. that the, the current crop, or I guess the, the next to current crop of uh, people who are doing that, it's a new group of people who've come along and fastened on to this incredibly lucrative source of money for criminal activity, mm -hmm. which of course would be the drug trade. And then uh, that filters into the political system just the way in a previous generation, the vast revenues generated by prohibition filtered into the political system. And you could argue whether that was an intended or an unintended consequence of uh, prohibition, but that once you've got that revenue stream in place, it becomes even harder to dislodge. Yeah, it is it is very difficult to get um uh gangs out of power and what Chicago did in the 90s basically under the um uh, Richard Daley II was a combination of knocking down all the public housing and uh scattering uh the the the, the residents all over the city and going after the the actual gang lords usually in cooperation with or under impetus from uh federal law enforcement. Uh there was a very big anti-organized crime movement under uh, Reagan, and then another very big one under Clinton. And between those two, they not only sort of did for the old Chicago outfit bosses, but they also uh, took all of the major uh, gang lords, um, uh, Fort and um, uh, what's what are their other names? Jeff Fort was the one that ran sort of the South Side in my area. But there was um, uh, there was another couple of them that are basically all in supermaxes now. But the trouble is, as you mentioned, that having basically scattered the gangbangers to the four winds by knocking down the buildings and also taking out um uh, uh Barksdale and um uh and Fort and uh and the other guy they uh managed to sort of decapitate the the gang uh leadership and therefore we have this ongoing uh turf war as, in many cases as you note over you know micro turf over a couple of square blocks or the area around one elementary school and and this is much of what's driving our homicide epidemic in Chicago. They assume, they estimate that there's something like 80% of gunshot wounds in Chicago are gang-related, and obviously that would be, you know, about that amount of the fatalities as well, and that there's uh, something like now 50,000 people or maybe 70,000 people, depending on how you count it, who are either gangs or gang associates. Uh, and that's that's an awful lot of people, given that the Chicago police force is, you know, maybe a tenth that size or less. It's really an incredible cascade of unintended consequences. <laughs> yes. You have the unintended consequence of a moral crusade to take people's uh, dangerous intoxicants away from them uh, and some sort of surprise that an underground market exists and that a group of people floods who otherwise uh, don't have easy access to money and opportunity or at least the appearance of same because, of course, most people involved in the drug trade would probably be a little better uh, working at McDonald's than yeah, working in the drug trade. I mean, trade. certainly in Chicago, they've done the numbers. And uh, if you work at a fast food joint, which pay above minimum wage because uh, labor is so tight here, or at least labor that can count an ad is so tight here, 
um, you're you're making a little bit more, or at, or you know, not a little, little bit, like ten or twenty percent more than you are as an average drug soldier. But again, obviously, the upside is much better if you're if you're a, a, a gangbanger than if you're a McDonald's you know shift manager or something. Right. So building the projects had a giant unintended consequence of creating these barracks mm-hmm. and making crime more organized. Knocking them down had the unintended con- consequence uh, where we discovered that uh, the only thing worse than organized crime is disorganized crime. Um, so how would you paint sort of the grand vista of Chicago gang history from uh, prohibition to now? Is it a continuity or is there sort of a, a series of uh, kind of jagged breaks? Well, I, I would say that the the, the big... Um, it's, it's sort of a continuity of breaks that you, if you look at it, um, in both the, uh, the, in both the major gang risings, it was a previously neglected and, uh, and oppressed ethnic group on the South side that created a gang infrastructure. And I would suspect because specifically of that degree of oppression that they were, uh, forced to rely on these informal networks of, of defense and, and, you know, quote unquote justice. But they were able to create this infrastructure of protection that then, thanks to a fortuitous um, uh, prohibition policy, in both cases, allowed them to build a, a, a really a city-spanning and, and in some cases city-dominating uh, uh, political and economic structure. And you saw that with uh, basically Torrio unifying the Italian mobs on the south side, because up until Torrio, the Italian mob was basically... 10 blocks on Taylor Street, and it was the Sicilians and the rest, and the Italians were considered to be just sort of disorganized goofs by everybody, and it was Torrio, really, who builds them up, and Colosimo to an extent, who build them up into a genuine uh, city-dominating mob, and then Capone, of course, turns it from that into sort of a, a, a predatory capitalist enterprise, and then... Um, you have the same structure, again, with the black population on the south side, as you have desegregation and as the, uh, uh, the, the, the black belt is expanded throughout the entire south side, uh, and, you know, there's millions and millions of, of, of blacks uh, living in Chicago who are, once again, being oppressed, being uh, uh, steadily uh, ignored at best by the, by the power structure, and are forced, once again, to turn to neighborhood associations for any kind of social safety net. And as happened with the Italians and as happened with uh, my Irish uh, years before that, you develop into a uh, you, you, because there is no uh, outside society that is uh, admitting them. You build up, you know, in classic uh, Hegelian form, a gang culture, just like you had, you know, in German war bands in the first century uh, B.C. And these and, and these gangs, once more, because there was um, uh the the the, um, uh, the the black uh, uh, gangs in in Chicago were 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 so uh, forced to be smarter and better at their job than any of the other gangs because they were the ones who were always getting it from the cops or from the government that they would be able then when the marijuana prohibition came down in the 60s to start building another giant drug empire so I think you see both of those sorts of things as a continuity but the break between the old school Italian mob and the old school uh, uh, gangster disciples is it's a it's a it's a different um, uh, it's certainly different in in, um, in in the in the in the players if not in the actual effect on the South Side. And so in the the, the second generation of the people living in the in the projects, they I think suffer 
more of the effects of living in a gang culture than the uh, Irish and Italian immigrants? Or is that just me looking through a rosy glass of uh, nostalgia? Because it seems like those earlier groups still managed to assimilate and move up the socioeconomic ladder in a way that uh, people who are now living in gang-ridden urban neighborhoods have more and more of the uh, opportunities to engage in social mobility sort of stripped away from them because it's uh, so much more of a, a culture where it's almost uh, prison culture on the outside, where all of the survival instincts that you need to learn to uh, remain safe on the street, especially as a young man, are the same survival instincts that prevent you from moving into the job force. Yeah, I, th I think that there, the degree to which the rest of society was sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say functioning, but yeah, functioning in the 20s and 30s compared to the way the rest of society uh, basically went off the rails in the 1970s. And you can look at everything from, uh, uh, you know, primary school uh, literacy uh, uh, rates to, um, you know, just the uh, regularity of street repair. Every part of Chicago worked better in, a, in, in certainly in the South Side in the 20s and 30s. And whether that's because the society as a whole uh, had the sort of, um, uh, um, you know, necessary Victorian grit to, uh, to uh, lift up the downtrodden, or whether there is a specifically racial component to the disadvantage, to the disadvantagement of African Americans that was not present with Italians and Irish, um, I think you'd have to sort of be a better sociologist than I am. Obviously, I have my, my favorite um, uh, whipping boy for that, but I think that both of those are so clearly uh, plausible that I suspect it's a combination of factors, that you have a general collapse of uh, civic culture and of public education, of every other sort of way that the public interacts with uh, the government in, you know, in, in a lot of big cities in America, not just in Chicago in the 70s, that has not really been repaired even now. And, you know, you can look at individual uh, schools in uh, the South Side that are terrific, um, but an awful lot of the public school system in Chicago is appallingly corrupt and it's appallingly sclerotic. Uh, in the 40s, there was a bunch of uh, smaller school districts, so you could have sort of individual patches that were not being crushed by a larger school bureaucracy. Now Chicago's got a unified school district, which means, you know, every terrible promotion damages every school at once. And I think that that's the kind of thing that really at the bottom just produces a situation where, like you say, you know, the smart adaptive play is to um, uh, get used to living in prison and to not try and um, uh, uh, move on up the way that the Irish and the Italians were able to. Right. And you've also got a death spiral effect in that if uh, people are just in survival mode, no matter, you know, how great the leadership you get in charge of the, the school board or how great individual teachers are, that's just an insurmountable problem that's way bigger than the task of just trying to teach kids the stuff they need to learn. And so I guess, as is usually the case in History Hut, we have ended up History Hut with a post-it note for a future History Hut. <laughs> it looks like it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Terry, who is a transparent uh, pseudonym for Robin, asks, 
Would Robin please expound upon his concept of the iconic character? Uh, Robin, w would you care to expound, or um, uh, is this uh, one of those Comet in the West type situations? I will not refrain from, uh, I guess this is a combination Ask Ken and Robin slash uh, That Thing I Always Say. Yes. So That Thing I Always Say about iconic characters is that there are two main types of characters that you encounter in fiction. And by this, I mean fiction broadly written to include television series and uh, movies and comic books and, and any form of uh, narrative, uh, whether extended or, or self-contained, uh, and also, of course, in prose fiction. And the iconic character is the character who remains static, often uh, over a whole series of adventures, although you can point to examples of characters who are iconic, even though there's one installment so far of their adventure instead of adventures. So basically, an iconic character is a character who, unlike the dramatic character who undergoes a dramatic arc, uh, encounters a situation that forces them to make a choice between their two dramatic poles, and by moving through that situation resolves this disorder within themselves in one way or another um, with a footnote for the fact that sometimes there are ambiguous endings, of course. Whereas an iconic hero encounters an external situation of disorder in the world, and by remaining true to themselves, by uh, sticking to or reclaiming their essential nature, and that can just be as simple a matter as using the powers and abilities that are usually ascribed to them, encounters and overcomes that external situation and restores order to the world. So uh, Tarzan, who we dealt with earlier through his ability to be sort of the Rousseauian noble savage of uh, uh, unfortunately uh, European ancestry, uh, <laughs> solves... I like unfortunate that, um, yeah. uh, that Burroughs was just picking and I was like, oh, well, too late now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm stuck with this whole white supremacy thing. Might as well run with it. Yeah. Um, or Sh Sherlock Holmes, who encounters mysteries that he needs to uh, overturn with his vast abilities ex as a consulting detective. And therefore, any other detective character who descends from Holmes also counts as an iconic hero. Uh, the superheroes of Marvel and DC Comics are generally iconic heroes. Uh, and the lead characters of serial procedural television shows like Dr. Gregory House, who is also, of course, descended from Holmes, are all iconic heroes. And so by remaining true to themselves, they solve problems. And often the conflicts that they are put into by writers are often sort of false conflicts in that they are a threat to the premise of the character, which, if resolved, would end that character's career, which no one wants to see. And so you often have a phenomenon now where people who have taken creative writing classes and looked at classical narrative structure are looking at dramatic heroes and attempting to impose their rules onto iconic heroes. And this, for example, is why Hollywood is very good at doing origin stories for superheroes, because that is the dramatic arc that establishes the hero as iconic, but afterwards find it more difficult to write the more procedural stories in which that hero just encounters a state of disorder and rectifies it without being significantly changed at the end. And I think that's just because people have not applied the right level of analysis to it, because we don't actually want our iconic heroes 
to be ruined by having them change. We want to see them undergo in different variations the uber narrative that drives them again and again. And so, for example, you can see this theory in nonverbal form in a couple of anthologies that I oversaw for Stoneskin Press, The New Hero uh, and The New Hero 2, uh, one of which you have a story in. And the challenge there was to uh, ask writers to, uh, in most cases, create, but in a few cases, bring back their own new, relatively recent, iconic heroes in all sorts of different genres, whether it be science fiction or uh, urban fantasy or historical, and show you that structure repeated in all of these different variations and all of these different moods in order to show that this structure is just as versatile as the dramatic structure. Now, I've got a question about, um, I mean, we've talked about this obviously uh, before on the, on the podcast and also in uh, blogs and such. Um, I've got a question. The, there's obviously there's the there's the sort of as you say the the, the fake out story where um, the threat that the iconic character must overcome is the threat to his own self identity and uh, the Batman trilogy that Nolan did did that um, uh, pretty brilliantly with three faux dramatic stories or in in two cases at least genuine dramatic arcs within the Batman icon. And in each uh, situation, the solution of the dramatic arc was to become the iconic Batman. And the way that he managed to do that three times uh, while uh, making it satisfying each time, I think, is an interesting uh, pointer towards how Hollywood can uh, join their uh, ridiculous love affair with the dramatic character and a way to present an iconic character. And then there are also uh, things like when uh, whenever James Kirk uh, meets a really hot alien and he thinks maybe I can just give up all this starshipping and hang out on the planet and uh, and uh, have uh, alien sex instead of uh, go out and fight Klingons. But then he he sort of returns to his iconic self and um, uh, and and goes back to the ship and goes on uh, to the next planet and the next hot alien. Right. And the message there is usually the un the disordered universe still needs that iconic character to be that iconic character. You right. uh, have recently seen that again in the Doctor Who Christmas special, mm -hmm. where the idea is he's, you know, he's lost his set of companions for the zillionth time and has decided to not be Doctor, uh, not to be the Doctor anymore. But of course, a situation arises that sucks him back into being the doctor. So that, again, is part of that eternal uh, repetition of what seems like the threat of a change is really an opportunity for that character to return to the baseline and their essential self. And I actually find the ethos of the iconic hero sort of reassuring because it says uh, not everyone has to change all of the time. Sometimes being who you are and sticking to that is the achievement. And yeah. certainly in my life, uh, the times when I've been, you know, uh, offered opportunities to, you know, make mistakes in the, you know, ordinary, boring, mundane way that uh, relatively well-adjusted people are presented with the opportunity to make mistakes. The solution has always been to remember what I'm about and what I want and who I am and what I'm good at. And that has always been, the rewarding path to follow. In fairness, I think you would have made a good Toronto drug lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the particular way that the dramatic arc is expressed now in popular culture, especially in Hollywood, has, to me, an annoying tang of the, the therapeutic about it, is yeah. that people are broken and need to be redeemed. And there's obviously the idea of being broken and needing to be redeemed was invented before 
uh, Hollywood was. Even before therapy was. Right. Uh, <laughs> but there's a bit of a, you know, a, a self-help aspect to it that is a little trite when you see it over and over and over again. And that uh, it's not, you know, Hamlet is a dramatic character who has to overcome an internal contradiction, however you want to define that, whether it's the, you know, the man of vengeance versus the man of law or the man of action versus the man of contemplation. He doesn't, we don't start the play, even though he's in a state of deep depression, thinking that Hamlet is broken and needs to redeem himself. Uh, we are not, you know, hoping for uh, some sort of cure for Hamlet. And uh, that's why I think that the iconic hero to the extent that we are you know allowed to fully explore that structure is kind of reassuring well with uh with hamlet uh, you you get back sort of towards the point that i was that i was pointing at earlier which is that one of the interesting things that you can also do with an iconic character is and and you can only do it once which is maybe uh, an an iconic use of the iconic character but is that the iconic character begins not knowing what their iconic self is, but has a series of sort of iconic instincts, right? And I think the, the, the case that I'm immediately thinking of, not just Hamlet, who is asking in fundamental questions, who am I? And has to answer that question. Am I the man of contemplation? Am I the man of action? And he's got, you know, his, his father's ghost, you know, saying, be iconic, go be iconic, go stab people. Go be, don't <laughs> not be. Don't not be. But, but he has, you know, his, um, uh, his scriptwriter and his friends and all of society saying, no, iconic characters are dangerous and can injure people and maybe not do that. And so he's got all these, uh, the, these questions. He's sort of discovering, uh, what it is to be Hamlet. And I think that you can see that with, with a lot of characters. For example, Buffy the Vampire Slayer begins, as an iconic character, you know, uh, she is the one chosen to kill vampires. But through the course of her show, she has to determine, does that mean that I kill civilians if it's necessary to kill vampires? Does it mean that I can't fall in love, that I can't have a family and I can't have a normal life? I mean, does my iconic status separate me completely from the things that keep you know, that I'm defending? And that's the kind of question that, of course, the iconic heroes in the Western are always uh, faced with as well, is, you know, the nature of, of, of their iconic heroism is to drive them away from the reason that they are being heroic. Yes, you've got Shane leaving at the end because the iconic character once he has resolved the disorder in the town, there's no reason for him to be there anymore. And in fact, right. he's just a residual source of disorder that will attract more trouble. Right. And of course, that's part of the, the whole uh, text of the Batman movies as well. And, and of course, of High Noon, which is the classic uh, story where um, uh, uh, the only reason Frank Miller is coming to town is to kill Gary Cooper. And, uh, and and if Gary Cooper was not in that town, then in theory, the disorder would not descend on them. And that's the argument that the town makes when he's trying to um, uh, to see if if uh, if he's actually has to still be an iconic character or not. And and you get other uh, other stories, um, uh, especially, I think, in, in a lot of your sort of uh, mystery type stories where um, the ongoing mystery uh, approach where Veronica Mars is we are discovering with Veronica the degree to which she is an iconic sociopath in the Sherlock Holmes model, or we're discovering, you know, during Alias, whether or not Sidney Bristow is an iconic James Bond or a broken dramatic uh, hero. And we literally don't know, and maybe the writers don't know. And that happens, you know, uh, to a lesser extent in X-Files and to a greater extent in Lost. But a lot of the modern 
sort of serial story writing seems to be trying to have its iconic cake and eat it too dramatically. Right, or it's simple, simply different ways of probing that essential iconic self, right? What is the cost of being an iconic hero? What is the cost of being around an iconic hero? So it's not that there is no meaning attached to the iconic hero, and it's certainly not that there is no change attached to the iconic hero, but it's a matter of where the change comes from and the fact that it is cyclical rather than something that completes itself. And you have the contradiction of, for example, television series, which are uh, cyclical until the series ends, and then they try to wrap it up. And often the very most disappointing wrap-ups to cyclical shows involving iconic heroes are the ones that attempt to wrap them up and impose a sense of finality, because that then takes them away from being the character that we've always wanted them to be. And so, for you know, for example, the end of the X-Files show, you had... Uh, you know, Mulder and Scully switching places between, you know, uh, rationalism and intuition. And that was just weird and wrong. And it's like, well, you just turned into the characters I didn't want you to be anymore. And that's as much a part of the structure of the entertainment industry, whether you are a TV show that eventually has to end or a comic book company trying to make headlines by killing off one of your iconic characters because they'll never be seen again, people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's, uh, you know, part of the, the struggle with the uh, purity and uncompromising nature of that structure. And I think a lot of that is also that we sense that even a mythic character, even an iconic character, even Hercules or um, uh, Jason of the Argonauts, they have an end story. There's a thing, there's a last Robin Hood story, right? There's a last Hercules story. There is a thing that ends the myth. There's a last King Arthur story. And, I think there's a great temptation to want to be the guy who gets to write that story, you know? Um, obviously, Alan Moore has written the end of the Superman story, and no one else should ever try to do it. But, you know, I, I, you can see the temptation if you're Grant Morrison and you're, and you're soaking in, in a mythic structure that is an iconic story with an ending, that you want to be doing that last part of the iconic story as opposed to just an endless series of labors for the, for the guy to, to fight. Well, Conan Doyle was thinking that, and I said, I'll just chuck him over the falls, and that didn't take, did it? No, no, it, it, it never does. The iconic hero is bigger than you are. That's right. And now, finally, we... Once again, here are the revving chrono fluctuations of Ken's Time Machine, the segment in which Time Incorporated sends Ken back into history to alter or rectify past atrocities or just plain situations. And in this case, they've asked you, Ken, to investigate the feasibility and consequences of preventing the Nixon pardon. So what sort of brief do you assemble for yourself as you contemplate this mission? Well, the first thing that occurs to me is that I'm beginning to suspect my Time Incorporated supervisors of having hit my work liquor. Um, of all the things that are wrong with uh, the Ford administration, I wouldn't have thought that the Nixon pardon was at the top of the list. I would have thought that they would have sent me back to present, prevent the uh, massacre of a quarter of East Timor by uh, Suharto's Indonesian army 
uh, ha- from having been greenlit by Ford well, and Kissinger. Well, they have to come up with one of these every two weeks. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> or um, uh, or <laughs> or you know, again, <laughs> instead of preventing Nixon's pardon, maybe just preventing Nixon. That might be a step in the right direction. Well, one <laughs> one solution might might lead to the other. Yeah. Um, Time Incorporated's reasoning here is that what the Nixon pardon is 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 sort of solidified the concept of impunity for uh, the high actors in the American political system and that uh, the principle that, uh, well, we we must look forward, not backward. We will uh, ignore whatever possible crimes happen in this situation or that situation was cemented with the Nixon pardon. And this is why they've particularly zeroed in on that event uh, for you to prevent. But of course, you can go back to wherever you want in the time screen and uh, uh, prevent whatever ancillary events might lead to that. I mean, certainly uh, my superiors are not wrong that the Nixon pardon did have some very unfortunate knock-on event uh, effects in, you know, sort of uh, allowing the presidency to continue to operate above the law of um, uh, <laughs> allowing Nixon to continue to be a public figure instead of reviled, shunned uh, 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 criminal and um, to uh, generally doom President Ford's uh, re-election in 1976 and give us the Carter administration. So, you know, three different ways that the Nixon pardon turns out to be a terrible idea. I hear you uh, talking yourself into it. Yeah. Well, I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not going to say I wasn't going to take the job. I'm just saying <laughs> that it seemed like an odd job to, to get to take. Um, the, the simplest way to, to, to fix the Nixon pardon is to uh, go back to the point at which Al Haig is the guy who suggests it. And... Al Haig uh, goes up to uh, Gerald Ford in the uh, uh, sort of what would turn out to be the last weeks of the Nixon administration and said, you know, if uh, President Nixon resigned, as he's thinking of doing, you could pardon him right away and then there wouldn't be a trial. And that would be awesome, right? And President Ford sort of either, depending on who you read, didn't say anything or said, yes, that would be nice. And then Haig goes back to Nixon and says, great, uh, Ford has taken the deal. And Ford then has to <laughs> literally write out a statement, uh, you know, which reads something on the order of the fact that uh, you're resigning and then I'm pardoning you does not indicate that there was going to be a deal. Uh, and I didn't promise any such thing. Love, Gerald Ford. And it was sort of a an uncomfortable moment in, in Ford's personal history, because obviously his general uh, political history has been of, at the very least, a decent man, if not, you know, necessarily a particularly inspired one and uh, sort of a. Uh, an exemplar of everything that was decent about the old uh, American aristocracy and and uh, and ruling class culture, you know, you know, sort of uh, football and uh, and and stolid patriotism and 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 service to his country and the rest of it, and so to ha- to sort of be uh, tarred with this particularly slimy piece of political maneuvering is the sort of thing that that got under Ford's skin even when he was doing it. And Ford and Nixon were pretty good friends, so you can see him just having a a decent impulse that he wants to spare uh, Nixon, who he thinks at the time is dying of phlebitis. Well, there there may be Ford money uh, in Time Incorporated, perhaps, involved in building the the, the time machine. That's right. Our our time machine is a Ford Ford Focus, not one of your filthy DeLoreans. Um, But the... uh, Contact us, Ford. Um, so the uh, so so the, uh, the the general um, I think way to do it is to make Haig's approach to Ford more abrasive and more public. And again, 
uh, on the same <laughs> level as um, uh, trying to uh, drunkenly uh, convince Ted Kennedy of something or uh, or Jack Kennedy of something. This is not perhaps my hardest job in the world is to go back with a, a bottle of uh, a jar of moonshine and uh, while talking over the parlous state of the international situation with Al Haig, convince him to do something really ridiculous and half-cocked in public. Uh, his entire career has been... Uh, sort of a portrait of that, and if he... I am in control here <laughs> exactly, in the White House. Of the White House at this moment. And so if if, if I'm able to get Ford, uh, Haig to propose this to Ford in a more belligerent fashion, and in uh, an area in which people who are not immediate um, uh, uh, sort of uh, cronies of, of Nixon will be the witnesses to it, where, whether it's one of the the decent um, uh, people in, in Ford's press office. And, and again, I think his press secretary resigned rather than <laughs> submit the, 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 the statement of the pardon. So there were plenty of decent guys around Ford. Um, if you have Haig propose it as an even more naked uh, quid pro quo, and in such a way that Ford rejects it angrily because dealing with Al Haig would make even Gerald Ford angry, I think that you can probably put Ford in a situation where he, he, he doesn't do it and then convinces himself that it is, as it I, I think is certainly defensible to say, uh, would be the best for the country to have Nixon actually impeached by uh, the Senate and tried. And so, the um, uh, again, by the Senate, uh, the question of whether or not he would have ever been tried in a, in a, in a lower court uh, is a fraught constitutional question that even Leon Jaworski, I don't think, was willing to sort of step over the line of. But being, you know, tried in the in the well of the Senate is at least uh, more than than what did happen to him, which is pretty much nothing. So I, I think that's probably the the approach is is a is a flask of corn liquor and a, uh, a dick measuring contest with Al Haig is the way to get that going. So you uh, you get Haig blackout drunk. He goes to Ford. He says, "I love you, man. What we need is a pardon." And he slobbers on a bed. And of course, Ford recoils. So what do you think the new timeline in which uh, Nixon is not pardoned uh, will look like? Well, first of all, you have the, uh, the, the, the spectacle of the impeachment and the huge uh, and dramatic uh, degree of airing out of all the various Watergate charges in public in, in that uh, sort of judicial theater. And so, to begin with, you have the same effect that you had in our history in 1974 of a vast Democratic landslide as the extent of Nixon's uh, contemptible uh, behavior becomes uh, public. You may at you may also manage to really damage Nixon's reputation because he's forced uh, under oath either to perjure himself or to uh, explain what was up with sending the burglars to the Watergate, uh, all the other sorts of uh, shady activities that he was up to. Uh, you know, the 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 bill of attainder uh, against uh, the president, the the bill of impeachment was 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 probably not going to be that short, and the trial would have been huge and contentious and loud, but it would have happened, as I mentioned in late 1974. I think that it might have had the knock-on effect of getting rid of Kissinger and getting rid of a lot of the Nixon cabinet. Because again, Ford, when he comes in, basically keeps Nixon's cabinet around him until, uh, for, for the most part, uh, in his administration, uh, because he wasn't elected and doesn't have a mandate and all these other uh, uh, issues. And so I think you might have seen some more shifts in Nixon's cabinet. You might have seen uh, some attempts by Ford to distance himself from the Nixon administration in, in a way that did not happen in 74. And I think that those attempts would very possibly have won him the 1976 election against Jimmy Carter. And now the question of whether or not Gerald Ford would be able to govern 
you know, in a positive direction as opposed to sort of prevent the Democratic Congress from taking the country over the cliff in uh, the 70s is a different question because I don't think that you can as assess an awful lot of, of political power to President Ford, even if he gets reelected in 76. Um, I think you find it, it, it interestingly, it uh, may short-circuit Ronald Reagan's political career because if Ford is elected in 76, uh, serves until 1980, you have... Uh, the very real possibility that the oil shock, uh, uh, which occurs probably with or without Carter, creates the inflation and is enough of a situation to get Ford um, uh, overturned by, say, Ted Kennedy in 1980 or one of the other uh, Democratic Party, maybe one of the Western guys like Morris Udall or one of the other uh, uh, Birch Bayh, one of those guys. Right, and, and if, it, uh, if the public uh, shaming and punishment of uh, Nixon, if not Nixon and the slammer, lances the boil of the American malaise of the 70s, you've got a completely different sort of uh, mythic emotional atmosphere uh, in which these elections are coming and uh, taking place. And of course, that offer to erase the malaise from the chalkboard was a huge part of Reagan's appeal. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and there's, uh, there's an, another batch of different situations, because obviously losing or keeping Kissinger is not the determinant as to whether or not we take the Shah in after Khomeini overthrows him in Iran, because Carter did it without uh, Kissinger anywhere near him. But there is a outside chance that Ford might have said, you know what, why don't you go to France or why don't you go to Nicaragua or somewhere and not be in America? Because, you know, he's he's sort of got his eye on the ball and he's seeing the... Uh, uh, the the oil crisis of uh, 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 sort of boil up in a way that uh, Carter you know transparently did not right and and this Ford has already been rewarded for not uh, doing this taking the skeevy deal yeah right and so maybe if he's got this sort of public probity type uh, image that he plans to run on uh, in in 1980 uh, or at least to um, uh, to use for the benefit of of his party in 1980 he doesn't want to be you know have a whole bunch of ugly 70s questions asked about about the Shah. So you possibly don't have the Iranian hostage crisis, which again means it's possible that either if Ford is running for re-election in his own right in 1980, which is not outside the realm of possibility, or that, um, uh, say, Nelson Rockefeller or someone is, is running in 1980, that you see a Republican uh, win in 80. I don't know that that's a lead pipe cinch, even with, as you say, a, uh, a more optimistic America and no oil crisis, or, or rather no Shah crisis, um, I think that there is a degree to which the American people, you know, we generally don't let, you know, 12 years go by with the same party running things without trying a shakeup at the top level. It It is not a common uh, occurrence. And I think that, you know, a, a Ted Kennedy or maybe a Western Democrat could have could have won in 1980 and, and would almost certainly have won in 1984, which would have had the interesting effect of prolonging the Cold War, which is its own uh, uh, bad side effect, I think. I think there might be something that in a, in a later uh, time machine jaunt you could do about that. But uh, I think you've uh, listed a pretty good list of reasons why Time Incorporated sent you on that mission. Yes, but again, I point out that if I just um, uh, tilt the 1960 election to let uh, Nixon win in 1960, we get a liberal Republican in 1960 when we have liberal Democrats anyway. We have less damage to the uh, fabric of the country, and Nixon is not turned into a completely deranged um, uh, political actor because he's actually won uh, the election fair and square uh, in 1960 as opposed to having it stolen from him by the Kennedy machine. Here you go, spinning another timeline when I'm trying to wrap up the podcast. <laughs> well, that's, that's how we do things here in the Chrono Vortex. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. DriveThruRPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our missing 18 and a half minutes at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>